0: All right. So tonight we are going to continue our study of Esther. So if you would please open up your scripture notebooks and have them to Esther chapter five. Did the tape get? Um, did the tape get passed around? Did everyone? Was was everyone able to tape in the notes? Oh, it's Still getting passed around. Okay. There's there's two of them. Should should be getting passed around. Hopefully you get it. Just tape the note section into um, where you normally would take notes. So I already pre-taped mine in. So you have Esther 5 here, and then you'll just tape it in the note section over on this side of your scripture notebook like this. So when the tape comes around, um, if you would tape that there. So because those will be your notes for tonight's lesson. So To start off tonight's lesson, I want to start off with a definition. Um, That definition is of the word courage. So this is going to be your first fill-in-the-blank. Courage is defined as the quality of being able to act bravely under difficulties or in the face of opposition. opposition. So your first fill-in-the-blank there is difficulties. Courage is being able to act bravely in certain difficult circumstances or when opposed. So when you think about courage, you think about this definition, you think about uh, maybe you're at school and uh, maybe some of the people that you eat lunch with, they start making fun of somebody and uh, the courageous thing would be to stand up for the person that they're making fun of, right? To tell them that like, hey, it's not cool to um, demean people, To it's not fun or it's not cool to um, put people down at your expense. In fact, God calls us to encourage others and not put others down. And so it might take courage or bravery to act in that situation when you could face opposition from those other people sitting at your lunch table. Some examples that we see in the Bible, we see David showing courage. When he faced Goliath, there was an opposition, there was a a difficult task at hand, and David had courage as he went and faced Goliath anyway. So, question that I want you to think about uh, when you think about courage is, when have you showed courage? So just think about that at your seat. Uh, If you want to write it down in your notes, you can. Just think about courage and think about, hey, has there been a time where I've had to show courage? You will go over that question in small groups. So if you think about it, write it down and you can share it in your small group setting. I asked this and start off with this definition because tonight we're gonna look at Esther 5 and we're gonna see Esther in a place where she needs to show courage. She's gonna be in a situation where she is faced with life, with a life and death decision. And she needs to show courage. Before we go over Esther 5, though, I want to quickly go over Esther 4 from last Sunday as I'm I'm pretty sure we just read it, didn't really go over it. And so I just want to recap it again. That way we know what happened in Esther 4 so we know the context of leading into Esther 5. So in Esther 4, we we see three main things and then two main verses. First thing we see is that Mordecai and Esther learn of the decree that the king has sent to destroy all the Jewish people in Persia. And then we see that uh, the fact that Esther has not appeared before the king in 30 days, and anyone who appears before the king without being summoned gets the death penalty unless the king extends the gold scepter, which allows a person to live. It's this big staff, this gold scepter, and basically it's saying, hey, even though you've not followed my commands. I'm extending grace to you, or I'm showing favor to you, and you may request something. And so that's what that means by extending the gold scepter. It's this big thing that they hold on to, and they can extend it, and it's a sign that shows, I'm showing you favor and grace, that I'm not going to basically kill you. I'm going to allow you to approach me. So even though Esther has not appeared and has not been summoned, we see that um, Mordecai comes to Esther to ask her to go to the king. And Mordecai says this uh, verse in verse 14, that is really the theme of the book of Esther. It's where we get our series um, name from. In verse 14, the second half of that says, who knows, perhaps, this is Mordecai speaking to Esther, perhaps you have have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That's your next blank time as this. And so we've talked about many times of God working in the background, God being sovereign, God being in control. And this verse highlights that, that uh, for such a time as this is showing that God has orchestrated these things to pass. And then later we see Esther and all the Jews in Susa fast from food and drink for three days um, before she approaches the king. Esther asks Mordecai to fast and then she and her servants will also fast and for have all the Jewish people in the fortress of Susa to fast as well before she approaches the king. And, and then she says, you know, after the fast that she will go to the king, even if it's against his command. She has this famous line at the end of verse 16. You know what? If I perish, I perish. Basically saying, you know, we got to do something. I know my life's on the line. And we got to do something about it because all the Jews are going to get destroyed if nothing happens. So it's in that context that we now approach Esther 5. The fast is about to be done, and Esther is going to approach the king. So, open your scripture notebooks. If you haven't already, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we're going to read through the first eight verses. Pause. And then we'll talk about them, and then we'll read the last few verses after that and talk about that as well. All right, so verse number one. On the third day, so the third day of the fast, after that, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry, get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you, whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet. I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. All right, so let's pause here. Let's see what is going on in these first several verses. First thing we see is that um, Esther gained favor with the queen. I want you to underline the first part of verse 1 where it says, uh, it shows the part where it says on the third day. Because this shows that the fast that we see in chapter 4, we see that it is over. And it's time for Esther to approach the king. And as Esther approaches the king, it says that she gained favor with him. So I want you to underline that phrase also in verse 2. In verse 2, at the end, it says, or in the middle there, it says she gained favor with him. So underline that part of verse 2. Because this is a key point. Don't miss this. This is actually a really cool point in Esther 5. Because Esther has done the very thing that, if you were here a few weeks ago, that Vashti did in chapter 1. They both have gone against the king's command. Vashti, in chapter 1, was told to be summoned, and she disobeyed. Esther was not summoned, and those who approach the king who are not summoned could receive the death penalty unless given grace and favor by the king. So in a sense, Queen Esther and Vashti have both gone against a command of the king. The difference is, and this is the key, the difference is that the king found favor with Esther while not showing that same favor towards Vashti. And this is not by accident. You know, if you've been with us at any point in our study of Esther, I hope that you know that, we've talked about this a lot, that nothing happens by accident. Why? Because God is sovereign. God is in control. It is not by accident that the king shows favor to Esther here in this situation. You know, God is working and softening the king's heart in order to show Esther favor. God is working in the background even when we don't see it. And after the king extends favor towards Esther, he asked her what she wants and she responded with an invitation for him to and Haman to come to a banquet that she has prepared. So here we see the second thing going on in the verses we read, that Esther invites the king and Haman to a banquet. Now, while at this banquet, we see the king, again, drinking wine, which seems uh, to be a common experience of the king, if you've been with us at some time throughout this series of Esther. And while drinking wine, uh, the king knows that Esther still has something that she would like to request. He kind of sees that like, oh, Esther, I think I see that you're trying to create a situation to appease me so that maybe you can then ask your true request. And so he asks her again, you know, what? What? what do you want? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Even half the kingdom will be done. And now this phrase is not to be taken literally, but it's to show like, uh, generosity to somebody. So, for example, have you ever said to somebody, hey, whatever you need, like, I'll help out, right? Whatever you need, I'll be there. Just just let me know. Uh, I, I want to help. Have, you, have any of you heard that phrase when someone's, you're talking to someone or maybe you're trying to help somebody or um, I've seen it most commonly, like, when a family member passes away and someone comes to me like, hey, if you ever need anything, just just let me know. It's not supposed to be taken literally. If you need anything, they could literally be like, "Hey, I need a million dollars." You're like, "I don't have a million dollars, sorry." It's 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 a it's a phrase that is supposed to show more generosity. Like, "Hey, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to help, um, if needed, um, but not to be taken literally of like anything you need or whatever you need, because sometimes those are." Uh, impossible to fulfill if they ask something ridiculous. So this phrase is not supposed to be taken literally, but to show the king's generosity. So what does Esther respond? She responds and invites the king and Haman to a second banquet. So she still has yet to reveal her true request, but it says in those verses that it's at the second banquet that she will actually tell the king what's really on her heart. So some of you might be asking, you know, why two banquets? Why not ask the king the real request at the first banquet, or even when he asks the questions the first time? Now, it could be that she's trying to get the king to show even more favor toward her when she reveals her true request. could also be that maybe she's a little anxious. Think about it. She just approached the king without being summoned, Maybe she's a little anxious and wants some more time and doesn't know how the king's going to react. We really don't know. But what we do know, and this is something we've talked about all series so far, is that in the time between the two banquets, God is at work. He is sovereign, He is in control of the situation. So let's continue reading Esther 5 to see what happens between the two banquets. Well, we get to see a little bit of what happens, and we'll finish what happens in between the two banquets uh, next time. Uh, We study Esther in a few weeks. So, pick up your scripture notebooks, back up. Verse 9 of Esther 5. Verse 9. That day, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent first friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. And then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons, and he told them that all the, how the king had honored him and promoted him and rank over all the other officials in the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet, and she had prepared. And I'm avi- invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai, the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. All right, so that's how chapter five ends, but let's see what's going on here in these last few verses of chapter five. I want you to underline verse 9, the second half of verse 9, where it says, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. So that's at the end, um, closer to the end of verse 5, there, or verse 9 there, rather. It says, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. I want you to underline that. Because it's from there that we see that Haman is filled with anger because of Mordecai. So anger is that first blank See, Mordecai goes home and he brags to his family and his friends about all his wealth, his status in the kingdom, and the fact that Queen Esther has only invited him and the king to two banquets. But even though all of this Haman has, he is still not satisfied. Why? Because of Mordecai. Note in verse 13, underlined there where it says that Mordecai is sitting It says sitting, not bowing, not showing respect, not showing homage like other people would have, but it says it's sitting. From here, we see that Haman, even though he has everything he could ever want, he is not satisfied because of how one person views him, because of how one person reacts when he walks by, because he sits and doesn't show him honor. Here we see the second point, that Haman's satisfaction comes from how people view him. Haman's satisfaction comes from how people view him. See, as Haman is complaining and throwing a pity party about Mordecai, his wife and his friends, they basically tell him, you know, if you're unhappy with Mordecai, you're the second most powerful person in the in the kingdom. Why don't you just kill him the next morning? And that way you can go to the banquet that Esther's hosting, and you can be happy. You can have joy. You don't have to worry about this Mordecai that's bringing you down. Just just kill the guy if he's really bugging you that much. And what what does it say? It says, this plan pleased Haman. Look at that last verse in your scripture notebook. It says, it pleased Haman, and so therefore he had the gallows constructed. So therefore... This is the last thing that we see in this chapter is that Haman builds gallows to hang Mordecai on. And this is going to be really crucial to note for the rest of the story because those gallows are going to be very much present in the upcoming chapters of Esther. Now, I want to... Note a couple things with these gallows. So these gallows aren't the gallows that we traditionally think of. When we think of like gallows being hung on, um, this is going to be very simple. Everyone knows what this is. Hangman. Yes, you think of someone and uh, or a word, and if you don't get it right, you've hung the man. Right. Very simple, basic. Most of us, when we read the English word "gallows," we usually think of something wooden structure that people hang or are, are killed on. They they're hung to die. Now, this is not what is happening here. Okay. Historians that have studied Persian history, um, they don't death by hanging has not happened yet they haven't formed this practice yet but rather what would happen is that um, persians they would kill their enemy or kill somebody and then they would hang or impale this might get a little graphic the bodies and then the other arms kind of coming out that way um they would impale the bodies on a like a large stake, okay so uh and there's a couple of reasons why they would do this. They would do it um, so that people could see the bodies impaled um, so that other people would have fear um, so in it to show people to be fearful what happens to enemies of leaders. It's also intended to humiliate humiliate anybody who is affiliated with the deceased person. So it's a little bit more gruesome. It's a little bit more traumatic to see. But this is what it's being talked about when it's talking about gallows. I know it's the same English word as what we think of this. But if you look into the history, you look into the context of it, it's really talking about they're going to kill somebody and then their dead body will be impaled outside of the city or somewhere for all to see. And that's what Haman plans to do to Mordecai. He plans to humiliate Mordecai and anybody who is with him. Now, the next thing to note about these gallows, notice how tall it says in your scripture notebook. If you look in your scripture notebook and you see it says, you know, build gallows 75 feet tall. Now, it could be taken literally 75 feet tall could also be an exaggeration to show that they just desired for all people to see the dead body of Mordecai. Hopefully you see more and more this hatred that Haman has towards Mordecai and the Jewish people. And I know this seems very far out there and it seems very extreme, but at the heart of this thing, this event, at the heart of what Haman is wrestling with, I think we can actually relate with the same thing, and I think we've all actually struggled with the same thing at the heart of the matter. Because we're, I'm going to ask these questions, and we're going to close with this before we go into small groups. We're going to try to relate this. Think about it. Who's someone in your life that annoys you that you would like to get rid of in that moment in time? You have an example right up front? Yeah, Giorgio? Sure, so siblings, right? I, If I had to guess, there has been some point in time that each of you has been annoyed by a sibling and you're like, just please go away. Come on. Anybody relate? Anybody relate? Okay, think about it. Haman, very annoyed by Mordecai, not showing him respect, and just wants him to be eliminated, wants him to go away. Doesn't want to have to interact with Mordecai anymore. And at the heart of both you and your sibling or a friend or someone at school, you're wishing someone would go away because they're annoying. And it's very similar to see what we see with Haman. We see that Haman is focused on himself. You see, that Haman only wants to do what makes himself feel good, and that anybody who gets in the way of that, he doesn't want them to be around him. I think a lot of us can relate. At the heart of this, even though maybe the action is something we would never do, but at the heart, the motivation, the desire to have them go away so that we can only focus on ourselves, And what we want, and not to have to interact with those people, it's essentially the same thing at the heart of the issue. It's essentially the same thing at the heart of the issue. Now, a second question I want you to think about as we go into small groups is this. What is the situation in your life where you find yourself fearing people's opinion rather than glorifying God? God. See, in this situation when uh, Haman just wants to get rid of Mordecai, uh, we see that the main issue is uh, that Mordecai disrespects Haman. He doesn't respect him at all. He doesn't say and he doesn't show him honor. And that's something that Mordecai is fearful of because he doesn't want other people to start disrespecting him. He values people's opinion about him more than anything else. And it causes him to be angry. It causes him to be angry. Think about that sibling that annoys you. And you ask them nicely, hopefully at least the first time, to leave you. Or maybe you ask them to do something else and they don't listen the first time. You feel what? Disrespected. Right? You feel disrespected. Disrespected. And then what's the next emotion that comes out usually? Anger. Yes, anger. Again, I think if we're honest, we can actually relate more with Haman than we would like to admit. He was only focused on himself instead of trying to glorify God. He was focused on what people thought about him instead of trying to have a conversation, trying to communicate. It would have been a world of difference if Haman actually had a real conversation with Mordecai. If they were able to humble themselves and ask questions to one another instead of just being angry towards one another and disrespectful towards one another, one another I think it would have been a huge difference if they just talked and had a conversation. But no, you see, Haman not wanting that. He wants the power, he wants the glory, he wants the respect, he demands the respect. And so he's worried about people's opinion. Esther, on the other hand, similar situation we see. um, She could be in a situation where she fears people or the king versus glorifying God and and trying to do what's uh, righteous in God's eyes. Esther, on the other hand, she shows bravery in a difficult situation. She chooses to put aside what the king might think of her. She puts aside the fact that she could lose her life to approach the king. Why? Because she cares about uh, her people. She cares about rescuing the Jewish people, God's chosen people, who part of them are living in Persia at this time. She chooses to glorify God than to focus on and make her decisions based off of what others might think about her. So we have Haman focusing on himself, and then we have Esther looking outside of herself and looking to uh, what is the best for uh, glorifying God. So as you go about your day, about your week, and you're faced with these circumstances or situations in school, you know, kids poking fun of people or... Maybe you got hard decisions coming up um, in life, or you're looking at what job to work at, you know, if you're a little bit older. Or think about even the decisions of do I play this sport, do I not play this sport? what are my friends gonna think of me if I join this club? If I don't if I don't join this club, or if I sit at this lunch table, whatever the situations might be, I wanna challenge you. Instead of thinking about what what do people think of me versus what does God think of me? How does God view me? How does God love me? How does he see me in Christ? And then ask yourself, what what decision to make best glorifies God? What decision to make can I be a better witness to those around me? To show the love of Christ to others around me. I just want you to think about that. I want to challenge that to you and myself um, as we go and continue living this week. So would you bow your head and pray with me before we go into small groups? God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word to learn more about um, who you are through the story of Esther. God, I just pray for all these students and leaders here tonight that uh, whatever situations or decisions that we have in front of us, that we would choose to glorify you instead of worrying about ourselves, that we would trust you, instead of um, having uh, anxious thoughts about what others think about us, God, that we would hold on to your love for us and let that be enough in our lives. God, we love you. Help us to have good conversations in small groups. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.